Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thanks, Kirsten. Thank you, Aaron and the band for leading us this morning. And thank you for joining us online for what will be our last service before we have a chance to meet in person again, which, as Kirsten mentioned, is happening next Sunday, June 14th. We're going to be having two worship services, 9 a.m., 11 a.m., family worship service. We want to remind you, for those of you who are following us online, that we are going to be live streaming our 9 o'clock service. And so it'll be online at 9 o'clock live on the same platforms that we've been using, Facebook Live. And if you've been on our website through our app, but it'll be at 9 o'clock instead of 10 o'clock next week. So, excited about next week. It's going to be awesome. So, hope you can, hope you can join us. But today, we are going to be continuing our series on crucial questions. And as we've been doing throughout this series, we have been taking questions from you, questions uh, related to Christianity, the Bible, faith and culture, and how all those things work out. And then we've been putting them together in this series and addressing them from almost like a broader picture standpoint. And so we've been taking some of these 70 questions that you've given us, packaging them together, and then asking a broader question. And so we're going to ask one of those questions here this morning. And the question that we're looking at today, our crucial question for today is, how does God change us? Uh, Some of the questions that were asked online were things like this. If the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that lives inside of me, which of course the Bible tells us, why is it so hard to change me? Great question. To die to oneself on a daily basis seems extreme. Again, another thing that comes from the Bible is Jesus tells us that we die to ourselves to follow him in discipleship. So are Christians really supposed to do that? If so, wouldn't the world look different than it does? Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. And then finally, this question Uh, which is a really good question as well. Do I sin without knowing it? So under the heading of how does God change us, we're going to hit those questions and even more here this morning. Now, I had to tell you, several years ago, I once had a friend of mine say to me, I don't envy you. And just about as I was, just as, as I was about to get offended at what he said to me, he told me, the reason that I don't envy you is because I wouldn't want to be a pastor. And For a minute, I thought to myself, well, there's probably a lot of reasons why he would say that. So I asked him, why exactly would you say that? And he said, well, you deal with people all the time that say that they want to change, but in reality, nobody ever changes. Everybody stays the same for the most part. And I thought to myself immediately, it, it, it kind of frustrated me that he said that. I was frustrated initially because he's a Christian. He was a guy who grew up in the church. And if there's one thing that we believe as Christians, it's that God can change us. One of the basic tenets of the Christian faith is that we are people who can change. And as we follow Jesus, things like discipleship and spiritual growth are all about changing and growing into Christ-likeness. And, sh- and just like the question we uh, mentioned a couple of minutes ago, there is the power of the Holy Spirit in us. The same power who raised Jesus from the dead is the one who is at work in our lives changing us. So I was a little bit frustrated about the conclusion that he came to. But as I've thought about it and as that question is kind of, or as that, as that assertion is kind of aged, I thought to myself, there is something that had a grain of truth in what he said, is that it is really difficult to change. And often we do say we would like to change and we want to change, but how often do we actually see real change and transformation like what the Bible talks about in our lives when we follow Jesus? 
And I think it's one thing to say that we want to change and one thing to say that uh, God changes us, but it's another thing to actually change. And I wonder if that's because we don't know how to change, we don't know what change looks like, or maybe in the end, although we say we want to change, we really don't, and the desire's not there. The Bible tells us that as born-again Christians, we have what we need to really change, that the person of God in the Spirit is in us, and that he causes us he causes in us change that happens, and not just change that vaguely happens in some kind of vaguely positive way, and not just becoming a better version of ourselves or being able to live our best life now, but that the Holy Spirit has a unique and eternal goal to change us into the likeness of Jesus. It's the Spirit's desire and his role to do that in our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I think the subject of change is an idea that is relevant and timely right now given what is happening in our world. Everyone is talking about change right now. But what does change look like and what should it look like? I want us to explore that this morning really from three different levels. What does it look like for us to change as an individual Christian? What does it look like for the church to change and how should the church change? And what does it look like for the world to change as the church impacts the world around us? So we're going to talk today about the events surrounding the death of George Floyd and the role that we should have as Christians and the church in impacting the world around us, and maybe how these events should change us as well. And I know every time we talk about current events from the pulpit, I, I often get resistance, sometimes very direct and vocal resistance to talking about these things. And usually it's from the standpoint of, look, I have to listen to these things all week long. I see them on my social media feed. I see them on the news all week long. And I'm just tired of talking about them and tired of hearing about them. And I come to church so that I can escape those things and focus on something else. And I get it, especially right now in the climate we're in with the coronavirus and four, four months or, uh, of dealing with this now and being in lockdown, we're constantly reminded of the things that we are dealing with on a daily basis. And then when you throw in the social chaos and injustice that we're facing right now, it's exhausting. And then believe it or not, I get it. I'm fatigued too. But one thing I would say is that we don't have the option of ignoring this. And I'm talking about this today because I believe in the church. Speaking of the church, everyone's quoting Martin Luther King right now. And so I'm going to also, as someone who loved the church as well. And he said this, or he wrote this in his letter from a Birmingham jail over 60 years ago. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God is upon the church today as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Now, those words were written over 60 years ago uh, in Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. But except for that last part, the part about the 20th century, sadly, that could have been written last week and been every bit as relevant as it was 60 years ago. 
Now, I've given my life to serve Jesus' church, and I believe that his design for his church is not to be a mere irrelevant social club or even just a provider of spiritual goods and services, but a force and a community of people who have been called to change the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we're experiencing right now in our country that has come back up again and again to the surface as a result of the killing of George Floyd, a black man being killed by a white police officer, is something that has to be addressed in the church. And I believe this because I believe the church is uniquely called and uniquely resourced to address this very thing among us and then into the world. Because we are people who at the core of our beliefs, at the core of the gospel of Jesus, believe in things like justice and love and change and reconciliation. They are the foundation of what we believe. And there's a lot of talk going on right now about being on the wrong side or the right side of history. I'm not really concerned as much about being on the wrong side or the right side of history, but I care about being on the right side of the kingdom of God. And since we're told that the kingdom of God is full of righteousness and justice, we cannot be silent when injustice reigns. So if there's ever a time for us to talk about what's going on and how, in our world and how it affects the church, it is right now. And I know that a lot of us, again, are tired of hearing about injustice and talking about it and seeing it everywhere we go. But for a moment, if you're not black, I'd like you to consider how tired the black community in America might be about experiencing injustice in our world. Brought a video with me this morning that I'd like you to take a look at. It was a video that was posted by a woman by the name of Brittany Payton. Uh, the name may sound familiar. Brittany is actually the daughter of the late Walter Payton, the NFL Hall of Famer who played for the Bears. Um, and she, is recording, she recorded this video and posted it onto her Facebook account this week uh, to record an event that happened to her just this previous week. I'd like you to take a look at it. So, I haven't posted anything in a couple of days. And I think a lot of it is just because it's just been so sad to see what is happening in this country right now, what's happening in our city right now. You know, a city that I was born and raised in and that I absolutely love. And what prompted me to actually pull this out because something just happened to me that I wasn't sure if I was gonna say anything, but I actually called my brother and I told him about what happened. And he said, no, B, you have to say something because people just need to know what it's like and what happens and it's real. Um, I went to the store, I haven't left my house in days um and i went to walgreens to just get some sinus medicine because my allergies are bad and things aren't feeling that great um and we're out at the house so my mom who's been staying with us decided to drive with me and was nice to just get out it's a beautiful day outside so we're at the drive-thru at the walgreens which is in my neighborhood and i'm sitting there and and there happens to be a car that was behind us. And all of a sudden, I just noticed that the man got out of his car and he was standing outside of his car door, the driver's side of his car door. And I just kind of looked and, you know, with everything that's going on, you just, you know, you're a little extra vigilant these days. 
And um, he happened to be a white man, probably in his 50s, uh, 40s, 50s, maybe something like that. And he started just staring. And then he started clapping his hands like, come on already, like get moving, come on. And I just thought that was kind of odd, but I'm like, all right, well, maybe he's just impatient today. You know, there's a lot going on. And then he goes to the back of his trunk and he opens his trunk. So again, I'm just watching because being extra vigilant this, these days, and he's rummaging around in his trunk and he pulls out a watermelon. And he holds his watermelon up from behind the car and looks at me in my window. And I'm wondering, really? Is this supposed to mean something? You know, there's a lot of negative connotations when it comes to African-Americans and watermelon, but I just kind of sat there again. He closes his trunk, comes back around, and then he starts cooing at me. He starts cooing like a monkey to my window from his car. And then I knew everything that he was doing and the reason why. And obviously it was because of the color of my skin. And it's just, and it's not the first, not the first racist thing that's ever happened to me. I'm 35 years old. There's been many a times in my life that I've had to deal with racism. But just today with everything, I don't know, something just broke because it's, it's ridiculous that people have to put up with this all the time, every day, and you just deal with it. You deal with it and you go. And it happens everywhere. We just have to be better. Now, there are a few reactions that you might have to that video. But here's one that I want to speak to. The one that just merely says, oh, that's tragic and unfortunate, but at least that's rare. That's an anomaly. That's one crazy racist guy out of a lot of good people. And it's unfortunate that she experienced that, but those things are few and far between. I want to speak to that because that's a common reaction, especially among non-black segments of our population. And it totally misses the point, by the way, of the reason she put that video on Facebook. You heard her say, this stuff happens to me all the time, but it really got to me because of all that has been happening over the past couple of weeks in our country. And then she asked her brother, and her brother said, you have to share this because this kind of thing happens to us all the time. And this is the point, ultimately, that I want to get at. The problem of racism is not something that is out there, limited to isolated events in certain places. Because as much as we would like to believe otherwise, the problem of racism is as near as your heart and my heart. John Piper says this in his book, Bloodlines, which I would recommend, I'm gonna quote a few places from there today. But it says this, he says this, racial tensions are rife with pride. The pride of white supremacy, the pride of black power, and where pride holds sway, there is no hope for the kind of listening and patience and understanding and openness to correction that relationships require. The sin of pride will subtly contaminate all of our relationships, even where it is not recognized. A disease that does not have to be diagnosed in order to infect and kill. And the cross of Christ is the key to killing pride and living in humility. And that's ultimately what we want, I want us to look at today. 
sin, how God changes this, but because of what's going on in our world right now, how racism is the most obvious symptom of sin that we are facing right now. And I think it's enlightening to look back at scripture and see how this has been told to us from the very beginning. You know, from in the first week of Crucial Questions, we looked at the purpose of the Bible, and we spent a significant amount of time camping in Genesis chapter 3, where we see the curse happen, and we see the results of the fall, and one of the first things that you see is how sin begins to break and fracture relationships, how it divides people, in particular people who are different than myself, the other, if you will. Male and female created Adam and Eve different in the beginning before sin, their differences complemented each other well. But as soon as sin enters the picture, those differences are played upon each other. And in the very closest human relationship, that marriage relationship, division and dissension and suspicion and hatred and conflict takes place. And then you go to, and then you go to Genesis chapter four and that division, that sin spreads into their family as Cain kills his brother Abel. And then from that point forward, going all the way to Genesis 10, what we know is the Tower of Babel incident, there is relational chaos happening all throughout as sin continues to break relationships to the point where people are scattered all over the earth, geography, languages, and ethnicities are are divided. And in every, and from that point forward, the fruit of division has been everywhere. In every human relationship, in every human society and culture. Look, the problems we have in America are significant, but they are also indicative in every culture since the beginning of time because every culture has been made of sinful human beings. In other words, whenever you see divisions and especially things like racism, it comes from our sin, yours and mine. So the question then is how do we fix this? I want to walk us through five necessary actions to change. By the way, these things are applicable to how we change sin in our lives, but in particular, how we change the sins that lead to division and racism and the sins that come from pride. The first thing is this, we need to listen. James 1.19 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I really believe that the first and most necessary important posture that we need to have right now is a posture of listening. To listen to what God says in his word and to listen to other people right now who are hurting, who we've been called to love. And if we'll listen to God in his word, he'll tell us, we'll hear him say something like, knowledge puffs up and love builds up. I think it's at this point point that we need to realize we don't need more Christians who are puffed up by their knowledge, especially right now. The information and social media age has made it so that we have become accustomed to weaponizing every piece of knowledge or information to prove our points. As as Christians, what that causes us to do is lose our focus on winning hearts and winning people to Jesus just so that we can win an argument. I don't know if you've noticed, but there are a lot of puffy people throwing articles and stats and figures back at each other and across from side to side because they saw it on the internet somewhere or a talking head told them about it. And look, if you read a place like 1 Corinthians 13, you'll see that even if you are right about your facts and figures 100%, there is one thing that endures. If you fail to love, you are wrong. No matter your stats and studies, no matter what they may tell you, if they cause you, if that process causes you not to love people and not to listen to people, then you're wrong. And look, being right and wrong is It's not the time for that right now. 
This is the time to love, and in order to love, you have to listen. You can't love someone if you won't listen to them. When it comes to loving someone, listening is the first step. And by the way, listening is a godly thing as well because God is a listener. Scripture is full of examples where, 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 where God tells us, I am listening to your prayers. We talked about that this past week during our day of prayer and fasting, that God hears our prayers. He listens to us. And then we see places in Scripture where God heard the Israelites crying out of Egypt, and he delivers them from slavery. And he heard the words cries under the weight of sin, so he sends a savior. And he hears us crying for the kingdom to come one day, and so he promises that the kingdom will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. God is a listener, so as God's people, we have to listen to other people. People who have different experiences than we have had. Your experience is your experience, and truth is consistent. But other people have different experiences, and when that truth is applied to their experience, it's a different kind of application. And so you need to listen to people that you don't normally listen to, people who have experienced life differently than you have. And if you're listening right now, you might be hearing terms like systemic racism, patterns of racism, history of racism, white privilege, Black Lives Matter. And it's unfortunate that those words and those phrases have become so politicized because it hasn't allowed us to really listen to the things that are being said behind those things that have been classified as quote-unquote liberal talking points or virtue signaling. And look, I think this is where our one of the many places where our politics has hurt our faith. Because many times when we hear a phrase like that, we hear somebody use that phrase, it's full stop, I'm not listening to you anymore. Because I know somebody told me that represents my political views, that if I hear you say that, you're part of the other team. And it cuts off the process of listening and communication. And again, if you can't listen, you can't love. And look, I'm not saying you have to agree with every perspective that's out there. But again, you cannot love someone who you will not listen to. And the world does not want to hear Christians say, we love all people, but we don't want to listen to you because you have a different perspective. If we listen, we might just learn something too. Personally, I don't know what it's like to have to sit down my kids and say to them, because of the color of your skin, people will say things to you and do things to you that are unjust, and those things are hurtful, and they will strike at your very humanity. I can't imagine that. I've never had to do that with my kids. My dad never did that with us. With me, my grandfather never did that to me. But if you would listen, and I would listen, I might hear that black people in our country have had to say that to their sons for generation after generation. That the history of racism in America, be it slavery, Jim Crow laws in the South, the civil rights movement, have lasted hundreds of years, and the effects of all of that does not get cleaned up overnight. John Piper says this, the dream of the civil rights movement in the 1960s has not been realized in the way that most of those involved had hoped, which means that the situation we find ourselves in is not one of educational, economic, residential, political, or medical equality. Nor is there a growing integration of our lives, but rather for many a retreat into greater separation. In some ways, inequalities are greater and segregation is on the rise. For most African Americans, these realities shape their consciousness profoundly. The majority culture, which for a little while longer is still white, has the luxury of being oblivious to race. Kevin DeYoung said this in reflection of what happened to George Floyd, of the killing of George Floyd. 
The anger and fear and pain felt in the black community isn't prompted by this one incident alone. It comes out of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and too many times where power and force were used against the black community in ways that are evil and unjust. You know, Galatians 6 verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I'd ask you, what does it mean to bear the burdens of, uh, that our black brothers and sisters are carrying right now? that your black neighbor is carrying right now. Even if you don't have the same view of things, one thing you cannot deny is that the black community in America is hurting. They are angry and they are asking for change. And those of us who are not black, if we're gonna love, we need to listen. And from listening goes to our next point, takes us to our next point, understanding. You know, the first step we need to make is to listen, but there's a difference between listening and understanding. Understanding is actually much more personal. Where listening involves things like words and phrases and sentences, understanding is much more personal. It listens to the heart that is behind those statements and stances and points of view. It, not invo it involves not only listening to the words that people are saying, but being able to step into their world to understand where they are coming from and to listen to their heart. And this is especially true for people who are hurting and people who are created in the image of God. Look, to use a biblical term, understanding is kind of like listening incarnationally. So taking the model from Jesus who incarnated to take on human flesh, to come to us, to come to us as a human being and becoming a man, coming into our world in every way with us, this is what we're called to do. John, 14, John 1 14, excuse me, says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that Jesus came to live so that he would see our situation and understood us in such a way that then Hebrews 4 says, we do not have a high priest, and referring to Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet is without sin. I believe that incarnating changes our perspectives like few things can. Uh, about a year ago exactly, I was in South Africa, and I was visiting some missionaries who were there, uh, with another church that I was connected to at the time, and we were, in, we were in Cape Town, and the group that we were with took us outside of Cape Town to some of the townships that had been set up outside of the city. And if you don't know what a township is, a township is essentially a shanty town uh, that was established in, back in the 1940s in South Africa when apartheid became law. And the government of South Africa forced blacks out of the city of Cape Town and Johannesburg and all the other large cities in South Africa which was designated for white only at that time and forced them to move into these townships. Now these townships are basically just made of huts and, 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 and shacks and really comprised of leftover scrap metal and scrap wood that people have built their homes out of. And as you go to South Africa even today, you may know that although apartheid ended in the 1990s, 1994 to be exact, and when I was there, it was 2019, so 25 years after. As an outsider, you walk into that place, and we had a guide who was with us, and he took us to the top of the hill, and you could see the shanty towns everywhere. It looked like apartheid was still in effect. And in fact, our guide, who was uh, a black South African who had grown up in the townships, actually confirmed as much. He said, look, apartheid law ended 25 years ago, but apartheid culture still exists. Townships are still shanty towns where black people are forced to live here because they have no other way out of their situation. They've built their homes with scrap metal and wood on land that they're still not allowed to own. 
Sewage, water, and electrical infrastructure is not maintained and does not expand with the growing population. So the infrastructure is a mess, and the government seems to not even care about it. Now, honestly, I was left with a new appreciation, looking at it from my standpoint as an American, for the claims that many black people have had about America. That centuries of racism and segregation and discrimination, although technically ended 60 years ago, have left their mark and have been so culturally embedded that it's taking this long to unravel it. So much so that this is symptomatic of the reality that people in America face today. As Shelby Steele says it this way, black skin has more dehumanizing stereotypes associated with it than any other skin color in America, if not the world. When a black person presents himself in an integrated situation, he knows that his skin alone may bring these stereotypes to life in the mind of those he meets, and that he as an individual may be diminished by his race before he has had a chance to reveal a single aspect of his personality. He will be vulnerable to the entire realm of self-doubt before a single word is even spoken. That's uncomfortable to read, it's uncomfortable to hear, and maybe we don't want to believe it, but knowing this is a part of understanding people who need to be loved. And if we're going to change, our perspectives have to be changed so that we can better live out the gospel of love, truth, and grace. From listening, we go to understanding and then to, confess, then to confession. You know, as a kid, I never believed that I grew up in a racist world. Part of that was just being a kid. I was kind of oblivious to any kind of racial struggles that might have been going on around me. But I think a big part of it was that I grew up in suburban Phoenix. And growing up in suburban Phoenix, the only time I really heard about racism was in my history class, when they told me that racism was a part of the history in America, but that it was just that. It was history. It was gone. That as soon as the Civil Rights Movement happened in the 1960s and the Civil Rights Bill was signed and passed, racism was gone now and we could move on. Now, for a long time, that was my perspective because I didn't feel overtly racist and I didn't say things or do things that I thought were racist. I had a couple black friends. I figured that racism really didn't exist and where it, where it did, it existed somewhere in pockets of the South or with some older people from a different time. But, my ra but racism in my neighborhood, racism in my school or my church, it didn't exist. And certainly racism didn't exist within me. And maybe you grew up with a similar mindset. I'm not racist. I have black friends. My favorite athletes are all black athletes. I wear Michael Jordan's shoes and I have his poster on my wall. How could I possibly be racist? Some of my favorite TV shows were The Cosby Show and Good Times and Reading Rainbow with LeVar Burton, who was black. And I watched movies like To Kill a Mockingbird, Mississippi Burning, and Do the Right Thing. And I cried during those movies and was thankful that things weren't like that anymore. It was a blissful place to be because as they say, Sometimes ignorance is bliss. As I grew up, though, I started to sense that not all was right on that front. At first, and really for the majority of my life, every time racism popped its ugly head up, like with the Rodney King beating or the riots that happened in Los Angeles, it was to condemn it and to excuse it as an extremely rare occurrence. And every time a black person would talk about racism in America, it was like they were talking about a different country or just playing the race card. And in some ways, as I look back, they were talking about a different country. You see, they were talking about what it was like to be black in America, and I had no idea what that felt like or what that looked like. I assumed that all of us as Americans, all of us have the same rights and opportunities, and so you have the same ones I do. If you are where you are, it, was, it must be because you're not working hard enough, or your parents didn't work as hard as my parents. 
And that's one of the first times that I began to recognize the silent racism that was in me. And it wasn't just against black people, it was against anyone who was different than me. It was against Asians and Middle Easterners and Native Americans, and even though I'm Mexican myself, it was against Mexicans from the other side of town. And when I started pulling at that string, I realized it was everywhere in my heart. That launched me on a new journey, and honestly, it's been a journey that I've been on for years now. Because it's, and it's one that I don't know that I'll ever completely, fully finish, because it is the fight against sin, ultimately, in my heart. And look, this shouldn't be too much of a surprise, because as we talked about earlier, it is sin in all of us that causes division, and ultimately, pride and division and racism as well. And that work that we do to see where something comes is a work of identifying it, calling it out, and giving it a name. Because at its heart, confession means agreeing with God about your sin. And I think that entails agreeing with God about what sin is, what it does, and where it comes from. In Luke 18, Jesus told a well-known parable about two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, who go to the temple to worship, and the Pharisee prays before God in the temple, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. We might add to our list, even like that racist over there. But the tax collector, and you may know this parable well, said what? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said the tax collector was the one who went away justified because he confessed, he agreed with God about the state of his heart, the state of his sin, while the Pharisee was blinded by his own pride and self-righteousness. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says this, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I'll ask you a question. If God revealed to you that you were greedy or prideful or lustful or any of these other things on this list that we just read from Galatians 5, would you stop and say, yeah, I'm greedy, but at least I'm not stealing money? Or, yeah, I'm lusting after every woman that comes across my path, but at least I'm not having an affair? Hopefully what you would do is say, I've got an issue with this sin and I need to work through it. I'm gonna, con I'm gonna confess it, call it what it is, and deal with it. We're accustomed to doing that in many ways in our lives, but almost nobody thinks they're guilty of racism. Instead of saying, thank you that I am not like that, maybe we should say, God, am I like that? Am I not seeing it? Have mercy on me, a sinner. From confession, we should move to repentance. A few years ago, I mentioned how I've been through this journey of really trying to uh, have a new perspective on race around me. And uh, three years ago, I was, at a, uh, I was at a Walmart. We were in Colorado at the time. So with a group of people, and we were at a ministry conference of the church that I was a part of at the time. And uh, there were three of us who were, who were not black and one of us who was black, and there were four of us getting groceries at Walmart for the place that we were staying at. 
And as we left that store, uh, the three of us who were, not, who were not black were walking ahead of our friend who was black. And uh, we walked right through the security thing and walked right through where the greeter was, the Walmart greeter. He was an older man, and he was just saying, hey, goodbye, have a good day, that kind of thing. And we walk out, and I walked, we all walked into the parking lot, and I, and I sensed that my friend who was behind us because he was carrying one of those big cases of, of bottled water, the Walmart brand, those big things. He was kind of behind us uh, several feet. I sensed that he wasn't behind me anymore, so I turned around. And when I turned around, I saw him at that door with the Walmart greeter, and the Walmart greeter was asking him to see his receipt. And at first I thought it was strange because the three of us just walked out with about $200 worth of groceries, and he's getting stopped for a $3 case of bottled water. And he's asked to see his receipt. He pulls, he's pulling out his receipt at that point. And another thing that was strange about the whole interaction is how long this Walmart greeter made him sit there while he looked at a receipt where there was one item on it for $3. I thought it was strange, and my friend got the receipt back, and he's starting to walk out to the parking lot. I kind of walked out to meet him, and I could tell he was frustrated. I mean, he wasn't upset. He wasn't, you know, saying anything out loud, but I knew him, and so I could tell there was frustration on his face, and he was, had his head down, and he was shaking his head a little bit. And I said to him, and I kind of knew what he was thinking, and I went to him, and I said, man, you're not going to play the race card on that, are you? I mean, come on. That was just a, you know, that was just a coincidence. Of course, they're going to check receipts from time to time. And I'm lucky he didn't punch me in the face right there and lay me out in the Walmart parking lot. Instead, I think he'd been used to his non-black friends not understanding what he experiences on basically a daily basis. And he said to me, he said, man, look, you don't get it. That happens to me all the time. By that point, his wife had joined the conversation. She was one of the ones with us and and she said to, and she's white, and she said, to a, she said to me, yeah, if I'm not walking with him, he gets stopped like that all the time. And here's why I tell you that story. After all I had been through to try to work through the issues that I had in my heart, it was still popping up. Repentance is a continual process. It's not enough to merely not be racist and say that we've taken care of the problem. Saying that we're not racist is like saying, I'm not greedy, or I'm not lustful, or I'm not going to gossip, or any other sin you can think of. You don't merely say that. When you recognize those things, you're aware of them, and you battle them in your heart. You recognize that it's there, and by God's grace and power in your life, you fight it. Because fighting racism is not just about fighting those few groups out there, but it's about fighting the sinful divisiveness and pride that is in my own heart. Because sin tries to hide sin, and sin lies about sin, and sin gives birth to more sin if it's not dealt with. And you know this, if you've ever fought sin in your life, it doesn't go down easy. You have to fight it, and you have to kill it. And it has to be more important than your self-preservation, your self-righteousness, your pride, your vanity. You need to be killing it, or it will not die. And in order to battle against sin, you have to decide to kill it. There's a simple principle here. What you feed continues to grow. What you neglect in terms of sin will continue to grow. But what you starve and what you kill will eventually die. And so from repentance, we move now to action. James 4:17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
We are called to walk and follow Jesus where he leads. That's what discipleship is all about. And we were not meant to stay still. We were, we were meant to be people who are agents of grace and love that we receive from God so that we can actively display grace and love in the world around us. So Jesus showed us love through action, and we are called to follow Jesus in loving action. So what does that look like in a case like this? Well, the book of Acts in the New Testament gives us an account of the beginning of the church. In Acts chapter 2, the church is born among the followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. And I think in our discussion today on race and the church, it gives us really a new window into what is actually happening here as we approach it from that standpoint. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now notice that the birth of the church is full of all kinds of different nations of Jesus followers together in one place. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church of Jesus, what happens? They begin speaking in each other's languages and they're hearing someone else speak in their own languages. They're listening to each other and what they're hearing in the end are the mighty works, the praises that are going up to God. I think it's amazing and it's important for us to take note of how God chose to start his church. This was God's will. This was his hand on this very event. And with a diversity of nations, a diversity of languages, all hearing one another and listening to each other as one, this is how he birthed his church. It's the reversal of the Tower of Babel in many ways that divided nations and divided people and divided languages. And hearing the worship of God from people who spoke a different language brought everyone together. This was the church that was formed by God's will for his glory and the church that was called to change the world. And for the first century, at least, the church lived like this in diversity. Jews and Gentiles in church together, living life together. People who previously hated each other, called each other dogs and wanted to kill each other, were now sitting together, worshiping together, and being in community, sacrificially loving each other. And their very existence, this unity in the midst of diversity, was a beautiful testimony of the gospel in whatever city they were a part of. Do you think they disagreed on politics from time to time? Do you think they had different backgrounds and experiences? Do you think there were phrases and words that they didn't appreciate that someone else might have used? Absolutely, that happened. But they heard each other and they loved each other and they were sent to change the world together. One of Martin Luther King's most well-known quotes about the church is that it is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Now, of course, Dr. King is talking about the time that churches in America typically meet for worship. And he said that again, 60 plus years ago, but today our churches are still the most segregated places in the nation, and in that regard, they are nothing like the early church. 
And maybe this is time and what we are facing right now to see what the church can be. And not playing to our prejudices and our preferences, but to embrace coming together as the church at a time where our nation needs racial reconciliation and healing. What if the church led the way in being that agent? What if the church became the church of Acts again, the church of Pentecost, the church of Jesus? And as I said earlier, I believe in the church. I don't believe that Jesus' dream for the church was to be a social club that just affirms all of our comfortable thinking and a place where no one disagrees with us. I believe the church was created to give glory to Jesus in this world, to truly be the body of Christ that moves into this world and makes the world look more like the kingdom of Jesus. And as we do, people are drawn to our king. That has to start with love and compassion. It has to start with justice, and those things don't happen in our world with a passive approach. They must be moved on. Michael Emerson and Christian Smith give us a window into what happened in the evangelical church during the Jim Crow era. And they said this, recall that in the Jim Crow era, most evangelicals, even in the North, did not think it their duty to oppose segregation. It was enough to treat blacks they knew personally with courtesy and fairness. The radicalized system itself is not directly challenged. What is challenged is the treatment of individuals within the system. Now, for those of us who look back in hindsight, we might be appalled at the fact that Christians wouldn't oppose the horrible Jim Crow, Crow laws in the South that led to segregation in every aspect of society. Considering it just enough at that time to just be nice and be courteous to the black people that you knew, rather than opposing the systemic injustices that they saw. I think we have to ask ourselves again in this generation, could we be doing the same if we remain silent when we see systemic injustice and racism today? This is not a sermon about public policy. It's a message about who the church is supposed to be and how God changes us and that and that as he changes us individually and he changes us in the church, he means to change the world around us. In other words, this is not a message about public policy. It's a message about the mission of the church. And this is a time to recognize that the pain caused by our sin in breaking God's good creation is real and relevant and symptomatic all over the place, including the racism that we see. It's a time to pray for God to move us, it's a time to really join with those who are struggling, to mourn and to weep with those who mourn and weep. It's a time to ask what we can do to help. It's a time to listen. It's a time to understand. It's a time to confess. It's a time to repent. And it's a time to bring healing in a way that only the church of Jesus Christ can do. I want to leave you with some words from John Piper as we close. as he ties all of this together under the gospel. Jesus did not come into the world to endorse anybody's platform. He doesn't fit in. He created the world. He holds it in being by his powerful word. He will return someday to judge the living and the dead. And he came the first time to die so that left-wing activists and right-wing talk show hosts would be broken into pieces for their sin and put back together by the power of grace. He came so that from that day, from that day on, Jesus himself would be the supreme treasure and authority in our lives. He came so that we would become radically devoted to the glory of God. He came so that the kind of racial diversity and racial harmony we would pursue is Jesus exalting, God glorifying, and gospel formed.
Amen. You pray with me. Father God, our hearts are heavy today. As you know, as you well know, I, I, I think the more that we draw into the pain that's being felt by people whom you love and are created into your, in, in your image and people who you are weeping with, the more we feel and sense your heart. I thank you, Father, that you listen to us, that you have understood us, you have come to us and listened to us incarnationally. Father, that you allow us to confess our sin under the confidence of knowing that it has already been forgiven and taken to the cross. I thank you that your power at work within us by your spirit is changing us and transforming us so that we can do the work of repentance to look more like Jesus and to be a little more like Jesus in the world that we live in. And Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts what your church needs to look like going forward. Father, I, I certainly don't have all the answers. I don't know anybody who does at this point. But Lord, I know that your wisdom guides us forward. And I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, and give us the faith and boldness to step into the places where we need to display what the gospel looks like, what the kingdom of God looks like in this world, where righteousness and justice are the foundation of Jesus' throne. We cry out because righteousness is broken. We cry out because injustice reigns seemingly everywhere right now. And we know it's because of our sin. And so, Father, we repent. We know that you have forgiven us, but we come to you asking that you would transform us into the image of your son. I pray for unity in this church. Spirit, would you do that among us? Give us the humility that is necessary to expose the sin of pride and divisiveness that is in our hearts and heal us. And Lord Jesus, heal our land. Heal your creation. And pray these things in your name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thank you again for joining us today. Um, again, I am a believer in the church of Jesus. I am excited about our potential. I'm excited about the way that God is moving, not only in North Bible Church, which I'm certainly excited about that, but the way that God seems to be moving throughout our city and throughout our nation right now. God does some of his best work in times where we're healing and broken and when things seem dark because the light shines brightest in the darkness. And so I pray that we would be a city on a hill that does not hide its light under a, a, a lampshade, but we would shine the light of Jesus into every dark corner of God's creation. 
And uh, thank you for joining us again. We are looking forward to seeing a lot of you next week in person. And again, we want to remind you for those who are going to continue to join us online, we're going to be streaming at 9 a.m. because we'll have a 9 a.m. service, and that'll be a live stream for next week. So don't forget to join us. You guys have a great week. Be blessed. Know that God loves you, and I love you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.